As you'll remember from last week, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians have now moved from being reactive towards Christ to proactively trying to pursue Christ. And uh, the way that they're doing that is, is asking him these questions. Uh, they're trying to get him into a debate. They're trying to make him choose certain sides. And in choosing certain sides, their hope is that his following will disperse and at worst, they'll have a point at which they can um, pinpoint to, to kill him. And so that's where we're at. They've asked a question already last week. We, we're calling them traps, the trap of politics last week. Uh, so they, the question was all about his authority and his answer in regards to money and nationality. And I'll go ahead and tell you the other two questions that they're going to ask today ahead of time. They're going to ask the question um, of doctrine and details over doctrine, namely about the resurrection. And they're going to trap him in his answer to how does the resurrection occur? What does that look like? And then they're going to have another question. And the question about his authority, again, is, is going to be about uh, regards to the law itself. And we could call it the trap of religion. And so it's going to go even deeper from just doctrine into the uh, essence and heartbeat of the law. And then Jesus is going to take his turn. And he's going to ask a question at the end of that. And his question is again going to be about his authority. Remember all of this began back in chapter 21 where they're questioning his authority to try to trap him. And so his, his question is going to be about um, his authority as Messiahship and do they even understand what the Messiah is about. So that kind of catches us up to speed. Let's see where this passage takes us today. And, and I think it's going to speak to some very current issues. And so again, in God's sovereignty, as always, He's speaking to the heart of where we're at. So let's pray, uh, even now, that, that God will speak to us by His Word. And, and Lord, we ask that, that You would speak to us by Your Word. So let's dive in. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 23. So again, we're now at the second question that they're trying to trap Jesus in. And that second question being the trap of doctrine, which we'll see here in just a second. Verse 23, the same day as the first question, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And so, again, let's look at this. Just like the Herodians last week were the ones who sided with Rome asking a question about that. Now we've got the Sadducees who don't even believe there is a resurrection. But what are they going to ask him? A question about the resurrection. Again, in an attempt to... Uh, trap him, and there's an old joke here that says the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they are sad, you see. Now that's awkward to a camera, <laughs> and it's an even awkward joke if we were in person. So we would just uh, pass on from there. And so they ask him a question, verse 24, saying, Teacher, Moses said, now actually, Moses did say this, but what they're going to say that Moses said actually occurred with Judah back in Genesis 38. So this predates Moses. Moses said this, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now that's 100% true. It's the... Uh, law of redemption or reconciliation. We saw this when we went through Ruth together. This is what happened with Ruth and Boaz. Um, he 
redeemed her because she had lost her husband. And so this is, this is true. This is, this is good. This is right. Now they're going to trap him in the details of that through doctrine about the resurrection. So let's look at that. So verse 25. So there were seven brothers among us, and the first married and died, and having no children left his wife to his brother. So to the second, and the third, all the way down to the seventh. And after them all, the woman died. Now, let's just be honest. If, if you and I were there in that moment, our temptation would be to jump in and go, hold up, this lady is a murderer. What is going on? But that wasn't their point. Okay, And so their point is verse 28. Here we go. Now remember, they don't believe in the resurrection, but here's what they say. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So, if Jesus suggests that any of them had her, He would split off a certain segment of the society. And then if He suggests that nobody had her because there's no resurrection, they would certainly split off a portion of society. So that's their goal is to get Him to answer in that way. So watch His answer, verse 29. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. In other words, you're the experts, supposedly. And as experts, you don't even know what the Scriptures say, and you certainly don't know the power of God Himself. And so then Jesus goes on to say this in verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. Now think about that real quick. What He's saying is this, they're not married, and that's the, one of the highest things that we can even think of in the world today. We, marriage is um, uh, where we have a spouse that we can share one anotherness with, um, where we have kids where we can raise and enjoy. The inheritance is passed down through marriage. I mean, all of these thoughts is, is kind of one of the highest thoughts that you can have on earth. And he says, heaven is nothing like that. You're not given in marriage. It's something other than that. And he goes on to say, but, what did he say? But they'll be like angels. So point number one is the resurrection is nothing like earth. It's nothing like earth. It's, it's kind of like that old illustration of if you go to a child and you say to that child, hey, look, I'm going to give you a PlayStation or I'm going to give you a million dollars. And you let that child pick, which one are they going to pick? Well, every day, if they're a young child, 100% of the time they're going to pick the PlayStation because they have no concept of what the million dollars is like. And, and that's what Jesus says to them. You're asking me a silly question, but the resurrection is so much greater than anything that you could possibly imagine. So you experts are questioning my authority, but you don't even understand the resurrection. The resurrection in and of itself is a cause to rejoice. It's not a cause to debate. And if you understood what it was to be like an angel, then you wouldn't even ask these questions. An angel longs to be there. An angel doesn't long to be on earth. Uh, angels throw parties together. 
They're not thinking about what would earth be like. And then this is the beauty of the resurrection. The beauty of the resurrection is it's something so much greater than anything we could ever dream or imagine. And they didn't have a concept for that. And they're actually trying to use the resurrection as a means to pinpoint and get Jesus in a trap. This is what I love. And, and, and I, there's not much to love about funerals, but for a believer, there's a lot to love about a funeral. Just a couple of weeks ago with the passing of Mr. Earl, um, it's one of the things that I say in, in every funeral that I'm at, if the person is a believer. And it's this, Mr. Earl, even if he had the choice, wouldn't choose to come back. Why? Because he's now experiencing the resurrected life in a way in which we have no concept for. And yes, we hurt and it's real and all of those things. But I'm telling you, he's experiencing heaven in a way that angels do and it's a cause to rejoice. And just like I said, which is why I have one of the big problems with people who write the books of I went to heaven and I came back. You wouldn't come back. You just would not come back because you're in eternity with the Lord. And this is the first thing that Jesus says to them. They try to pinpoint on the question of the resurrection. And He says, the resurrection is unlike earth in anything that you could ever understand. And then He goes on to say, verse 31, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is the God of the uh, dead. He is not the God of the dead, but He is the God of the living. So not only do you misunderstand the resurrection, but you misunderstand the Scriptures. Remember, they said, do you remember what Moses said? And, and, and they took it, Jesus takes it beyond Moses and says, look, you don't, you don't understand what Moses said, but more than that, you don't understand what God says about the resurrection. Forget Moses. Forget the fact that you reject Isaiah 26 and Daniel 12 and all of the other prophecies that clearly speak of a resurrection. But, point number two, the resurrection was defined by God, not by Moses. So this is His answer to them in this moment. So you experts... You're going back to Moses, let me take it back even further. And here's Jesus' argument. Just like God, when Moses was at the burning bush. Now Moses obviously is after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. He's, he's way after that. But when God meets Moses at the burning bush, and Moses is terrified, God says to Moses, stand still, take off your shoes, yes, all of that, I am the God currently of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, meaning and implying they're resurrected with me and they're experiencing resurrection with me personally. And so he pinpoints them, not just on the fact that they don't understand the resurrection, but they don't understand the power of God and the point of the resurrection and how he fits in it. So they try to trap Jesus and He spins it back on them. That's number one. So they try to trap Him again, no longer in just politics, but doctrine, and try to question His authority, and Jesus proves He has authority to answer all doctrinal questions 
as well. And then they go on, verse 34, as we continue. Verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now here we go, that competition, right? Sadducees, the Herodians had their turn, Sadducees had their turn, now the Pharisees are going to take a swing at it. Verse 35, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now, to understand this rightly, we've got to take off American lenses. We love Blake Williams. Blake, we love you, brother. Uh, but that's not the kind of lawyer that we're talking about. This would be, take off again the American lenses, a lawyer, an expert in the law. Okay, so the law of the Bible. So he would have been a theologian. He would have been an expert in theology and also legalities as related to the nation of Israel since they were formerly in a theocracy. Okay, so you understand? So they, what I'm trying to say is before they sent their disciples to ask him a question and kind of the rookies, well, this was no rookie. They didn't send the rookie at this point. They sent the big dogs. They sent in the big guns. They sent in the expert in the law to ask him a question to trap him. So here we go. And that lawyer asked him a question to test him. Verse 36, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Question number three. Now again, it's the trap of religion. And so if Jesus picks a specific matter of the law, and so in the law there are 613 commandments, not just 10. Okay, so, and, I, and I, we assume, according to this question, that this was a hotly debated topic. Out of those 613 commands, you could have weightier matters and lesser matters and all that kind of stuff. And so they come to Jesus, and if Jesus pinpoints one, he's now going to divide himself among all of the hotly debated topics and some people will pick his side and some people won't. That's their trap. They're trying to get people to be dissuaded from following him. They're trying to create that rift, remember? Okay, so let's see what Jesus does. Verse 37, And he said to them, here, here's his answer. And this comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the great Shammai, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. But here's what he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. The greatest and first commandment is love the Lord your God holistically with everything you've got. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, your totality of your being. That's the greatest commandment to which nobody would have disagreed with. And that has a natural byproduct. It's, it's kind of like the answer is it's, it's one coin, but the coin has two sides. So what is the greatest commandment? Here's the coin, and here's both sides of it. And then verse 39. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So not only do you love God holistically, but you love your neighbor holistically. So love is the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment of all is, is to love, and it's multifaceted. Love God and love man. Verse 40, 
And on these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. In other words, everything that you've just asked me, all the 613 commandments hinge on just that, to love, to love God and to love your neighbor. And it's interesting when you think about that because the first without the second is impossible. It's, it's impossible to love God with everything and then to hate your neighbor. That's what Jesus is saying. But then also number two, what He's saying is the second without the first just will never last. If you choose to love fellow man based off of choice or discipline, it's always going to break down. Why? Because our decision as man to love one another always has to be based out of effort. But God's love is not based out of effort. God's love is based out of what? Grace. Right? So if we try to love fellow man without loving God based on our own choices, it'll always break down because at some point we will choose to no longer give that effort to love the person that doesn't love us back. And so this is what Jesus is saying. It, it's so awesome. What He's saying is we love God and we love man. And those two are so mutually interactive because when we love God rightly, we receive love back to Him based off of grace and we deflect that back to man and it's just this ongoing circle of love and all 613 other commands fit right there. So let's be careful. The instruction is not love over law. That's, that's not what He's saying at all. But what He's saying is that love fits within the law in the answer to their question. A heartfelt religion will always produce a heart with love for God, a love for the law, and a love for fellow man. And so as I've, as I've thought about that, I, this speaks to us today. How can we not see this in regards to what's going on in society. Man, oh man, this speaks to us in our response to the world at large and what's going on directly in our culture in America in 2020. So yeah, he was speaking to these guys that asked him a question 2,000 years ago as they're trying to trap him. But does this question trap our hearts today? And I think it does. And how so? Well, in no way, if the law of love is written on our hearts, do we condone unjust murder. We condemn it because the law of love calls us to condemn injustice. We in no way also, on the flip side of the coin, condone destruction of someone else's property. That's a violation. We condemn it. Why? Because the law of love calls us to that. It's two sides of the exact same coin. It's, it's not complicated. We don't justify. We don't justify anything. And so this calls into question all kinds of things in regards to our society today. We as Christians are simply called to ask the question, in all things, the greatest commandment, 
what is the law of love in this situation? Um, do we view cultural preferences in light of the law of love? Do we choose to view certain choices based off of ethnicity or geography or socioeconomic status or whatever? Do we view that through the law of love? Do we view choices of style through the lens of the law of love? Do we, do we choose to view political slants based off the law of love? Do we choose past history based off the law of love? Do we choose skin color wherever you fall on the spectrum of the color wheel based on the law of love? Do we choose destruction of somebody else's rights in view of the law of love? Do we view what am I about to post on social media with the lens of the law of love? This is what this passage calls us to. In all things in life, we as followers of Christ are called to follow the greatest commandment. And that greatest commandment be, in all things, my first question is, what does the law of love demand in my response? This is how Jesus answered the Pharisees. This is how Jesus answers us today. And it's not that complicated. It's just really hard to do. Why? Because it calls our hearts into question. We don't ask the question, what would Jesus do? I've, I've said this several times at the church. I think that can get super complicated. Um, as a matter of fact, I've seen a lot of people recently talking about Jesus flipping tables and using that as an argument for us and our right to violate someone else's property. There is all kinds of theological issues with using that illustration as a right to flip other property, and I, I hope to write an article about that this week. If you're doing that, stop doing it. Don't do that, okay? That's, this is, that is a horrible biblical justification, and I'll give you several reasons why again, hopefully this week. But it's hard for us to ask the question, what would Jesus do? Because He was always righteous. But we do have a question based on the law of love that we can ask, and that being this, what would worship be? We can ask that question. Would it be worshipful? Would it be the law of love to destroy someone else's property? Is it the law of love to um, accept or embrace unjust murder? Is it the law of love? Is it worship to uh, uh, discriminate based off of prejudice or history or socioeconomic or demographics or style or whatever it is, ideologies, the law of love calls all this into question. And if the law of love is written on our hearts, it'll filter through our eyes and become the lens through which we process all things. Total allegiance to God is loving Him and loving those that He created in His image. This speaks to us today, and the implication of that is just simply this, that any outward fruit of religion devoid of 
us having an internal heart of love will always just simply be a candy-coated shell around a rotten core. And that's what this calls into question. Well, that's the question number two. They try to trap him in, and he obviously blows them away and doesn't pick a side. He just says, here's the, the law of love. Answer all your questions about the other 612 commandments. And so then Jesus has his turn as we wrap it up today. <clears throat> Verse 41. And so while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Now this is a real question. This isn't a question about taxes. This isn't a question about nationalities. This isn't a question about the resurrection. Now, this isn't even a question about the 612 commandments. Okay, He asked them the real question. And it's still the real question today. Verse 42, saying, What do you think about the Christ? And that is the question above all, all questions. They're questioning His authority. And His question is, I'll give you a question about the reality of my authority as Messiah. And so, whose son is he? And then they said to him, the son of David, which is not a wrong answer, it's just too simple of an answer, and that's where he is going to press in on their hearts. Verse 43, he said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, calls him Messiah, Lord? Saying, now this is all out of Psalm 110, okay? This is a psalm that was written by David, and so David is going to say something very interesting to him. So again, if Jesus is authoritative, then who is he? Because our only authority is the Messiah, and the Messiah, Messiah is the son of David. So does Jesus tie into this is, is kind of the question. And so again, I guess what I'm trying to say is the whole question is, who is the Messiah and is He just an earthly man? It's, it's kind of what it's getting at here. Verse 40, let's read 43 again, then we'll hit verse 44, verse 44 as well. So He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls Him Lord, saying, The Lord God said to my Lord, Messiah, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So in other words, yes, the Messiah is in David's lineage, but he's so much more. He's got to be more. In other words, he, he's taking them back to the baptism. He, he, he's saying the Messiah can't just be the son of David because David himself calls the Messiah his Lord. That's what he's getting at here. Okay, so what Jesus is, is throwing them back to chapter 3. He's saying, do you remember what God said aloud that none of y'all can deny? Do you remember what the voice said of me? And God didn't call Jesus the son of David. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So they're questioning his authority. And Jesus asked the question is, 
Who do you think the Messiah is? Well, it's just the natural son of David. And he says, no, 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 it's so much more because even David said it's got to be more. And let me tell you what that more is. The more is, not only do I fit in the lineage of David, but I fit in the lineage of God Almighty because God Himself called me His Son. And so he hammers them with this. And verse 45, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46, And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They understood exactly what he was saying. If none of that made sense, bottom line is you go all the way back to chapter 21. They came and they questioned his authority. By what authority do you do these things? He told them, because I'm the Messiah. They got it at certain points. But then they tried to trap him with all these questions. They couldn't trap him with any question. So he turned around and trapped their hearts. And he said, here's the authority that I have. I am of the lineage of the son of David humanly. But more importantly, just like David said, I am of the lineage of the father himself, which you guys have no concept for. And did they get it? Oh, they got it because they shut their mouths and they didn't say another word. So, though they weren't saved in this moment, their silence was still a tribute to His divinity. They didn't know what to say. He had unparalleled authority and they knew it. They knew there was nothing they could say that would trap Him. They knew there was nothing. And so at this point, as you know, in the Gospels, they switched from, we're not going to try to trap Him mentally anymore. We've just got to kill this guy. So believer, what does this say to us? Here's what it says. There is no one like our God. No one. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over all. He has authority over all. And not only does He have authority over all, but He has authority over our hearts. And thank the Lord that in His authority, He grants us grace. So believer, this is the God we serve and there's no one like Him. Unbeliever, what does this say to you? Surrender to His authority today. If you're an unbeliever wrestling with... Surrendering to Him as both Lord and Savior simultaneously. Savior meaning that He'll forgive you of your sin, but also Lord meaning that He gets to direct the steps of your life. Why would you wait? You're not the first person that's questioned His authority. But don't have the same fate as these Sadducees and Pharisees and Herodians who would never bend the knee and spend eternity separated from Him. Spend eternity missing out on the resurrection that they tried to trap Him in. Surrender to Him today. Why? Because He doesn't just give us the law of love, which a lot of unbelievers, they love that about Jesus. They love the law of love with which He spoke. But if you're an unbeliever, don't just love Him for that law of love. 
love Him because He also gives us the law of life. Life now, yes, but life forevermore. Jesus is Lord.